0: Amen. Thanks, Matt. Good morning, Life Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. Um, As Matt said, we're going to be in the book of James this morning. This is the second week in our series, Walking Through the New Testament Letter of James. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd love it if you'd turn to James chapter 1. While you're getting that out, I also need you to get out. Um, You can do this like the old-fashioned way on a piece of paper with a pencil, or you can do it on the notes app in your phone. Um, If my wife were in the room, she would grab like an empty gum wrapper from her purse or an old receipt of some kind, but I need you to be able to just jot down a couple of notes because I have some questions for you as we get started today, and I need you to be able to kind of record your answers to these questions. Now it's not like a pop quiz, Uh, I'm not going to ask you to shout your answers out at me, these are answers for you and you alone unless you choose to share them with your people over lunch later today. But I do really want you to be able to like, keep track of how you answer these questions as we get started here this morning. And so there are three of them. Um, the first question is essentially, who do you want to become? The second question is essentially, who are you becoming right now? And then the third question is, how are you going to get from one to the other? But let me, don't, don't worry if you didn't catch that. I'm going to like tease each of those out a little bit more carefully for us. Um, while we do that, let me just stress a few things. Um, first of all... Uh, I'm going to deliberately squeeze you on time. I'm not going to give you a lot of time. I want you to think about this very quickly and just write down the first things that come to your mind, right? I don't need you to overthink this. This isn't complicated. Um, And so, you know, the first things that come to your mind. And for each question, aim for like something between three and five answers, but just one word answers, right? Short, descriptive words, adjectives, my seventh grade grammar teacher, I'm sure would say. Um, So when I'm asking you about like who you hope you are becoming. You know, just use simple words like kind, patient, loving, you know, whatever. Like this isn't, it's not intended to be rocket science, but I'll ask you a question, um, give you 30 seconds or so. I want you to come up with three to five answers to that question. Good? All right, let's do it. So here's the first one. Let me make sure that I get it right. Yes, who do you hope to become? In other words... If you could describe your character five years down the road, the person that you hope you've become over the next five years, if you could describe the kind of like growth and maturity that you see in yourself, how would you describe who you hope to become? Three to five words. All right, second, who are you becoming today, right? I say becoming because none of us are finished. We're all in process, but I want you to think about the trajectory that has been established in your life. I want you to think about the person you are growing into. How would you describe that? Or you could think about it this way, like if we were to, you know, survey the people who know you best, how would they describe you? If we could somehow condense the last year of your life into a 30-second video clip and watch it up here, what would we say? How would we receive you? Who are you becoming today? Three to five words. All right, you're doing great. Last one. How are you going to get there? Right, what are the means that you will use to grow from who you are becoming right now into who you hope to become? Right, what are you going to pursue or embrace in order to affect the kind of change in yourself that you really want to see over the next five years? This last question is a little bit different than the first two, like the single word descriptors maybe don't work anymore here. And so I'll give you an extra moment or two, but three to five things that you hope to pursue or lean into or embrace in order to become the person that you hope to be. All right, so now you have three short lists, or at least you should have three short lists. Some of you have openly defied me this entire time. Don't worry, I have noted your names. I'll be sending the elders after you later. Um, That's a joke. Uh, Yes, anyway, you have three short lists, I hope. Maybe maybe you have a mental list because you're just rebellious that way, but you have three short lists. When I've done this with groups or with people in the past, Um, typically the answers to that first question flow pretty freely. And they're answers like these, faithful, wise. Again, we're describing who we hope to become. Faithful, wise, mature, generous, forgiving, kind, patient, loving, joyful. Does that sound like any of your answers? Anybody resonate with that, you know, list? Yep, good, excellent. Who wouldn't want to become those things, right? Who wouldn't want to grow into that kind of person over the next five years? And wouldn't it be incredible if one of the things that the Lord did here among us and through our church is that more and more of us got caught up in that kind of like wave of godliness growing in the time ahead? Great. Great. Let's talk about your second list. Again, when I do this with people or with groups, typically I get answers like, this is describing who I'm becoming right now. I get answers like, tired, angry, hypocritical, anxious, irritable, cynical, stretched, floundering, empty. Those answers resonate with anyone in the room today. Yeah, again, some of the same hands. So there are only like four people in the room who are brave enough to put their hand in the air. Again, I see you and I've noted you. But yeah, that sounds like us if we're honest with ourselves, right? Now the third list. How are you gonna get from tired, anxious, angry, hypocritical to kind, loving, patient, merciful, gentle, etc. How can we possibly go from here to there? Well, there are a lot of good and right answers to this third question. Among church folk, when I ask that question, I'll hear things like through devotion to God's Word, through prayer, through serving others, through engagement in my church community, through the empowering and equipping presence of God's Holy Spirit, and those are Fantastic answers. I really do believe that God will use those things to transform your character and mine over the next five years if we wholeheartedly pursue them. But did you know that there is one answer that almost always gets left off the list when I do this exercise with people? When I say almost always, like 99.9% of the time, nobody mentions this one thing. And it's surprising because God uses this one thing in significant ways to grow his people, yet yet nobody ever thinks about it. When you're making your life plan, when you're setting out your ambitions for who you're going to become and how you're going to become who you're going to become, right? Nobody ever mentions this as one of the key catalysts for growth in their life. No one ever says to me, you know, I'm convinced that God is going to wreck my life in order to grow and mature me in him. No one ever says, I'm convinced that God is going to have to blow some things up that are pretty important to me in my life in order for me to really grow. No one ever says, I'm convinced that what I really need in order to make progress in my character and in my faith, what I really need is sorrow and suffering. Nobody ever says that. Yet, as our passage in the book of James is about to teach us, Sorrow and suffering are among the most powerful tools in our Redeemer's hands when He seeks to grow us and mature us. Right, if all God needs to do is sand down the rough edges of your character, if all God needs to do is a little bit of work on you here and there, He finds that His Word, His people, these things are sufficient tools to just sand away those rough or hard edges. But if what God needs to do is to blow up the idolatry, the sin, the immaturity, the imperfections that are lost in our heart, if what God requires is an explosion there, then it is the dynamite of trials and suffering and sorrow that he uses to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. That's what our passage in James says today. Here's the sermon in one sentence. You ready? Trials will come, but God will use them for good because He is good. Trials will come, but God will use them for good because He is good. Let me show you that from James 1 2 through 12. For us today. I want to show us four key things in this passage that help us to see what this passage is all about. Four key things that will help us to see that trials will come, that God will use them for good, because He is good. Here's the first one. Trials are instrumental in leading us to maturity. Look at at verse 2 with me again. James writes, "'Count out all joys, my brothers,' When, if you underline in your Bible, underline when you meet trials of various kinds. James does not say if you experience trials of many kinds, he says when you experience trials of various kinds. Now, there are false teachers in the world who will tell you that if your faith is strong enough and sincere enough, then your life will be marked only by sunshine and roses and bird song, right? That if your faith is sincere enough and strong enough, then God will bless you with prosperity in this life and victory in this life. There are false teachers who will tell you that if you aren't experiencing those things and you are experiencing trials, then the culprit is your lack of faith. But the Bible clearly teaches us otherwise because James here, he doesn't say if you experience trials. He doesn't say on the random occurrence of trials in your life. He says when you meet trials of various kinds, count those trials joy. He also talks about various kinds of trials. Do you notice that? So James is teaching here. It's not limited to big trials, and it's not limited to small trials. It's not limited to monumental life-changing events or minuscule mundane moments. James is talking about the nitty-gritty everyday stuff of life, and he's talking about the stuff that involves the 9 p.m. phone call from your doctor, right? He's talking about loneliness. He's talking about grief. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about childlessness, he's talking about infertility, he's talking about infidelity, he's talking about divorce, he's talking about losing your spouse or your career or your pet. Right? James envisions various kinds of trials, and he says, in all of those kinds of trials, count them joy. In other words, James is talking about the kinds of trials that we are facing today, And some of us have walked in this room and we're carrying the kinds of trials that James is describing here. I want you to know, I see you. The Lord sees you. If that is you, then you come in here straining and struggling under trials of various kinds. The hope of James is for you. The hope of James is that the Lord will use those trials to accomplish his good purposes in you and through you. Why should we count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials produce in us uh, steadfastness. Maybe your translation says endurance. Like the idea here is a Stick to itedness, right? Like you're going to hold on to your faith and not depart from that faith, even under the testing. Where you get this idea. And in the end, as a result of that endurance or perseverance, you will be perfect. And what James is referring to is the fact that if we endure in our faith until the end of our lives or until the Lord Jesus comes again, whichever of those things come first, if we endure in our faith until that day, then we will be made perfect and complete when we're brought to new life fully and finally and forever in the resurrection power of Jesus. We will inhabit in the new heavens and the new earth glorious resurrection bodies, and those bodies will be perfect and complete. In the new heavens and the new earth, no one will ask us, how do you hope to grow over the next five years? Because our growth will be perfect and complete. We will be glorious like our Savior is glorious if we endure in faith until the end. And on that day, God will have used our trials to strengthen our faith so that we endure making us mature and complete, lacking in nothing. It's in this way that suffering, it strengthens and deepens our faith. Faith is like a muscle and muscles only grow when they're, when they're worked out, right? Now that working out, it can be sweaty and it can be painful, it can leave you sore and bruised and tired, it can rough you up, but that soreness and bruising, they, they have a purpose. And that purpose is the growth of your muscles. Right when, I don't know, Chris Hemsworth signs on to do the next Thor movie, right? He doesn't get in shape for that movie by sitting around and counting the millions he's already made from the Marvel movie franchise. No, he bulks up by working out, right? He develops arms the size of tree trunks through heavy lifting and serious exertion. His muscle growth, it requires discomfort. It requires pain. In the same way, the growth of our faith, it requires discomfort and it requires pain. But through that pain and through that discomfort, God transforms us. He makes our faith stronger. And through the strength of our faith, we hold on and we endure until we are mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Which means, in the end, that trials are a precious gift from God, because without trials, we can't grow. Without trials, our faith cannot be strengthened. And so, we need trials. They're a blessing to us, a privilege even, which is why we are to count them joy. Now, from a strictly human perspective, that makes no sense from a strictly human perspective. We want a life that's free from hard things. We might prefer a life that's easy and comfortable. But what a tragedy such a life would be in the end, for it would know not the growth and maturity that God only brings through His Word. I want you to listen to um, what the pastor and writer A.W. Tozer once wrote about this, and um, I'll tell you that there's a word or two in here that I had to Google this week, um, but I think that we'll get the idea even if we don't know every single word and its meaning. Um, Tozu, he wrote, the fallow field, a fallow field, it's a field that hasn't been cultivated, nothing's planted there, it's barren and empty. He says, the fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow, and the agitation of of the harrow. A harrow is something that I would use to aerate my grass in the fall. That's the word I had to look at. Such a field, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it, the field, intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it it can be counted upon to remain always the same while the fields around it change from brown to green and back to brown again. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. Now, as I read that paragraph, some of us, if we're honest, we would say, sign me up for that, right? I want that kind of life. Safe and undisturbed, sleepy contentment, Would that that describe the life that I am called to live. But what would we be missing if we were content to be the fallow, uncultivated, unplowed field? Tozer goes on, he says, it, the field, is paying a terrible price for its tranquility, Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know, because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. Indirect opposite to this, indirect opposite to the fallow field, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has been opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come. Practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life. Curious, exploring the new world above it, All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. And I love this. Nature's wonders follow the plow. Nature's wonders follow the plow. The cruel, practical, business-like, and hurried plow. The plow that turns you upside down and rips you in two pieces and leaves you bruised and broken. The plow that paves the way for the fruitful work that God is doing in you. Friends, trials are one of God's good gifts to his people. They're an instrument that leads us to maturity. Without them, our lives, they might be calm, they might be safe and undisturbed, but they will not be fruitful. We need trials if we are to be fields that are plowed and planted and ready for the harvest of righteousness that God would sow in us. Here's the second thing that we see in this passage, trials that cultivate in us a deep dependence on God. Trials teach us to wait on God and depend on God and rely on God. Without trials, we're arrogant and we are self reliant, but trials can make us humble and dependent upon our Lord. Let me show you that. Verse five, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, now, He hasn't changed the subject here. Why is he talking about wisdom all of a sudden? The answer is because we need wisdom in order to count our trials joy. Without wisdom from God, we will never be able to count trials joy. If we're limited only to our limited human perspectives, then we'll never recognize trials as the gift that they are. And so we need to pray and depend on God to give us wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach and it will be given to him notice what James says about the way that God answers prayers for wisdom he says God gives generously when we ask for wisdom so God isn't sitting on his cloud in heaven with just a tiny bit of wisdom to dole out upon those who really really need it no God is sitting with riches of wisdom eager to generously share those riches with anyone who will ask him He says God gives generously to all. So it's not just to like the uber spiritual. It's not just to the Christian elite that God is willing to give his wisdom. God is willing to give his wisdom to anyone and everyone who asks him sincerely for it. And he gives without reproach, James says. In other words, God doesn't find fault. He doesn't nitpick. He doesn't keep a record of right or wrong to hold over your head when you come to him and ask him for wisdom. He says, well, I don't know. Maybe I'd think about giving it to you this time, but you didn't ask me for it last time, and I saw what you did between last time and this time, and so I'm not gonna answer that prayer. No, that's not what God does. He gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't hold your past against you. He doesn't hold your present against you when you ask him for wisdom. But he does not give wisdom to those who doubt him as they ask. Look at verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, James has a very specific kind of doubt in mind when he says this, because the New Testament's very comfortable with people struggling in unbelief. But the kind of doubting that James is talking about here is a double-mindedness. Right? It's the double-mindedness that seeks something from God and at the same time looks over its shoulder because maybe there's a better option out there. Right? The person who wants to like cover his backside by appealing to God for wisdom and appealing to the world for wisdom. This is the person who's not completely convinced that God's way is the best way. And so he's constantly evaluating all of his options. James says that person is like a wave of the sea tossed about by the wind. Verse 7, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the person who comes sincerely to the Lord, the person who asks the Lord sincerely for wisdom to see trials as God sees them, that person can confidently expect that God will give him wisdom generously to all, without reproach. Trials, they teach us to depend on God for wisdom rather than relying on our own. The third thing in this passage is that trials teach us to trust in the gospel. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. James writes, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation.'" Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so, James, he transitions to riches here, but he doesn't do that because he wants to change the topic. And he's still talking about trials, But James knows that riches and poverty play a significant factor in how we respond to trials. For the poor, James says, trials are a helpful reminder to trust in the riches that Christ has secured for his people rather than in the riches of the world. That's why he says, right, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the lowly brother, the poor man, he's lowly by the world's standards. From the world's perspective, he does not have much. From the world's perspective, trials will send him reeling because he doesn't have any natural resources with which to like hold off those trials. If he loses his job, his bank account balance and his 401k are not substantial, so he can't like, ride the storm until he gets another job. No, the lowly brother... Right, he has nothing by the world the world standards with which to endure his trials, but he has Christ. Right in Christ, he has all that the eternal, glorious Father has for the eternal and sinless Son. But Ephesians 1 says that God has given us in Christ Jesus every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that God has raised us up to the right hand of the Father in Christ. So right now there is some part of you, if you are in Christ, that is seated in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of the Father because you are in Christ. Galatians 4 says that we are welcome in that throne room, not as servants, not as slaves, but as adopted sons and daughters. So We don't come and cower before the king. We come and we sit at the king's table and feast with him there as his adopted children do with the sure and certain inheritance that belongs rightfully to Jesus also being shared to us. And so the New Testament, unfolds for us the riches that are ours if we have trusted in Christ in faith. And it says to the lowly brother, boast in that when trials come. When trials come, let the world see your exceeding confidence—not in the things that you have in this life, but in the things that you have in eternity. But then listen to James's warning to the rich. And by the way, we are the rich in this passage. I don't care what your bank account balance or what your four hundred one k says, because of where we live and when we live, by comparison to the rest of the world, we are the rich. In the book of James, James says, let the rich boast in his humiliation, verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know what your riches are like, in other words, like a dandelion that's going to wilt under the summer sun. Maybe that flower looks beautiful for a moment, but its beauty is matched only by its brevity. It will disappear in the sun and the wind, and you will be left with nothing. So rich man, rich woman, James says, boast not in your riches, boast in your humiliation. What does he mean, boast in your humiliation? Well, this is what the gospel does to us, right? Just as the gospel exalts the humble, it humbles the rich. Boast in that humiliation, James says. No matter how rich you are, no matter how rich the world esteems you to be because of your wealth, no matter how much status and clout the world wants to grant to you because of your accumulated riches, boast in your humiliation. See, the gospel, it must be humbling news, brothers and sisters, before it can ever be good news. It must be deeply and irreversibly humbling to us. To trust in the gospel, you must say, no matter how rich I am materially, I am bankrupt spiritually apart from Christ. To trust in the gospel, you must say, I'm not a Christian because I've earned my way in or paid my way in. I'm a Christian because God has been generous to me and He's given me what I could never earn and He's provided me with the capital that I could never pay. To trust in the gospel, you must say, I once was a spiritual beggar, and all I could do was plead with God for his charity. All I could do was beg for his grace by the side of the road. But God, being rich in mercy and love, has shown me that mercy and love. And what trials help us to do, brothers and sisters, what trials help us to do as they help us to see that being rich in the world's eyes is not nearly as good as the world thinks it is. And trials help us to see that being poor in the world's eyes is not nearly as bad as the world thinks it is, so long as we are rich in God's eyes. And so may we boast in our humiliation. And may we boast in our exaltation that comes to us because of Christ and not because of anything in this world. Trials teach us to trust the gospel. Lastly, trials teach us to long for God and to long for glory. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, when he has endured to the end of his trial he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James says trials are temporary. When they end, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised us. When they end, we'll receive a reward so glorious and so joyous that nothing in this life compares to it. And trials, one of their great purposes is to teach us to long for that joy the purpose of trials is to teach us to long for God and to long for His glory. This is what John Piper wrote in his famous and excellent book, Desiring God. He said, this is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God and less satisfaction in self and the world. More contentment in God, less satisfaction in self and the world. Then he goes on, he says, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with Him has come through suffering. That's because suffering teaches us more contentment in God, less satisfaction and self and in the world. Trials and suffering grow us because they teach us to long for God and they teach us to long for glory. And from that perspective, God, He sends trials to us out of His love for us. Right? It is His kindness that leads Him to afflict us for through that affliction, He grows us from who we are now to who he wants us to be. Now, I know that's going to be hard for some of us to hear this morning. Some of us, we gather here this morning just in the teeth of affliction, right? Abuse, cancer scares, infertility, grief, loneliness, loss. We carry real and heavy things into this place. And so I don't say this lightly. But each of these griefs that we carry into this place, each of our sorrows, each of our trials, and the wise providence of God, and that of the infinite love of God, they can and will be used for our good. And if we ever doubt that, we need simply to set our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God turned the most infinite horror, the most infinite evil, the most despicable wickedness, imaginable into the greatest good that he could do for his people. We need simply to set our eyes on Jesus. A few years ago, we were um, at some friend's house, and uh, our kids were playing, and My daughter, Elliot, who was, I think, eight years old at the time, um, she took a flying leap off of a swing set and landed on her left wrist and broke both of the bones in her left arm. She had a buckle fracture right below um, the wrist on her left arm. Um, Elliot, being the kid she is, uh, didn't really think anything of that, and so she kept playing for, like, another hour. Um, And then eventually she realized that she like couldn't like squeeze a doorknob to open the door anymore and so she came to me and She's like "Um, dad my arm hurts and she showed me and her you know Left arm was twice the size of her right arm and I was like, oh, okay Well, looks like we are headed to the emergency room And so we went to the emergency room and you know, we sat and waited for a while eventually we saw the doctor Um, He gave her some painkillers took some x-rays and confirmed. Yep. It's it's broken And then he said We need to reduce the fracture Now I didn't break any bones as a child. turns out that like if all you do is read books and play the clarinet, you don't really break many bones. And so that was me as a kid. Um, You know, I had a a pain-free, broken, bone-free existence as a kid. And so I I didn't really know what he meant when he said, we need to reduce the fracture. But I looked at this doctor and he didn't seem like a raging moron to me. And so I said, okay, let's Let's reduce the fracture. And and intellectually, like I understood what he was talking about, we need to make this fracture that is large, smaller than it is right now. Um, And so what he did was he put Elliot under anesthesia. P.S. Elliot under anesthesia. Turns out she's pretty hilarious and hurtful. Definitely at one point while she's under anesthesia, she says to me, Dad... I'm really not excited about coming to church on Sunday because I know I'm going to have to sit through this sermon, and no offense, when you're up there talking, I just don't understand a word that comes out of your mouth. <laughs> and I was like, the truth hurts, kid. But anyway, so <laughs> I digress. My ego's still a bit wounded by that, obviously. <laughs> but um, <laughs> she's under anesthesia. The doctor, he begins to reduce the fracture. Now, I should tell you, like, I'm super screamish when it comes to medical stuff, Right? Um, it's sort of an occupational hazard being a pastor that you wind up in people's hospital rooms fairly consistently. Um, and I just need you to know in advance of that ever happening that like I've got a weak stomach, right? And so if you show me your wound, like I'm gonna pass out and they're gonna have to like care for me before they care for you. And like when we were in the labor and delivery room with four kids, all four kids, I was a stay by the head kind of dad, right? Like I just, I just don't want anywhere near that stuff. Um, and so this doctor, he's, he's beginning to reduce Elliot's fracture. She's out, right? She's under anesthesia. And what that meant was he put her arm on a table, and then he mashed on her arm like he was mashing potatoes, right? I saw this, like, grown man, like, putting all of his weight into the two tiny little bones in my daughter's arms. I saw him, like, grabbing it and smashing it and twisting it and, like, leaning into it as much as he could. And, like, I I was sitting there. My wife's holding my hand like I'm just holding it tighter and tighter and tighter because I'm about to have an aneurysm as I watch him reduce Elliot's fracture. And finally, after like 10 minutes, which felt like 10 years, he stops and he holds her arm up. It's like a wet noodle. And he's like, looks good to me. was <laughs> like, what in the world? <laughs> he Puts her back on the gurney, wheels her out for another x-ray, brings her back. And he's like, let me show you what I did. And he holds up the two x-rays. And on one of them, the first one, right, her arm looks like a number seven. But on the second one, you can still see that the fracture is there because the arm hasn't begun to heal itself yet but two very straight bones, because he reduced the fracture. Now friends, I don't know when the Lord is going to mash your life up. I just know that he will eventually mash your life up. Count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. And know that when the Lord does afflict you in this life, it is ultimately for your good. To lead you to maturity, to deepen your dependence on Him, to teach you to trust in His gospel, and to help you to long for Him and for glory. Trials will come, but God will use them for good because He is good. But he uses trials to straighten out what is broken in us. He makes whole what is shattered. He fills up what is empty. He uses trials for good because he is good. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith, the faith that we need to ask for wisdom so that we can count our trials joy when we experience them. Lord, and I pray that right now on behalf of those of us who are in the room who life is like smooth sailing for us right now, right? We don't see anything on the horizon. There are no storm clouds. Life is sunshine and roses and birds singing for us right now. I pray that right now you would press into our minds and hearts the truth that when trials come, you use them for good because you are good. And then I pray, Lord, for those of us who, like, We've walked into this room with a limp, and there are tears in our eyes and like a cloud in our hearts because of the grief that we've endured, the grief that we are still enduring, the grief that we sense we are about to endure. Lord, if that's us today, give us the faith to set our eyes firmly on your son, Jesus, who endured grief for us. He was the man of sorrows who who knew our pain. He knows still our pain. Set our eyes firmly on Him and help us to believe that because You are good, You will use even these trials for good. We pray that in Jesus' name.